damn it. I was thinking we shouldn't do we shouldn't do a, a banter segment, at least not talk about our assholes, but did you see Jordan <laughs> Peterson talking to this imam? Oh yeah, that was fascinating. Uh, what the fuck? Eric, did you see it? No. Okay. No, I did not. So the imam You should play the audio in the recording. It's it's really the question, did that happen, begs the question, what do you mean by happen? Is it, an, is it a mom or a sheikh? I don't even know. Islamic theologian, sheikh, whatever. And then Jordan Peterson goes on this long-winded thing going, well, what do, we, what do we even mean by God? What do we even mean by do? Do you believe in God? What do you mean by do? When you are dealing with fundamental realities and yes. you pose a question, yes. you have to understand that the reality of the concepts of your question when you're digging that deep are just as questionable about as what you're questioning you know so people say to me what do you do you believe in god what do you mean do what do you mean you what do you mean believe and what do you mean god and you say as the questioner well we already know what all those things mean yeah. except belief in god and i think no, if we're going to get down to the fundamental brass tacks, we don't really know what any of those things mean. Yeah, he's like, some people, when they ask me if I believe in God, it's like, well, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> uh, depends on what the meaning of is, is. Is there an ultimate purpose of life? Yeah, sure. What is it? What we're doing here. Which is what? Hopefully trying to make peace. Is that enough? We'll see. Yeah, because if it's better than the alternative. What's the alternative? Hell. It's just such a slimy way. It's such a slimy, like non-answer, because I know that he has convictions, like strong convictions. And it's just funny when someone asks him a question that he would have to like make those strong convictions he clearly has clear. It's like he doesn't want to. He's scared to. But you can tell from the way he talks about things with such authority. It's like you do have views that are like strong. But then when someone's like, okay, well, tell me what those are, you're like, well, it's so hard because like I have no idea. It's like, okay, well, if you're really that unsure, then why are you so convicted about all the stuff you shit on? Like, it makes no sense. It's like you're clearly just being a slimy fuck who doesn't want to take like, give a straight answer. But he's focusing on the word do, which the do is the least consequential word in the sentence, do you believe in God? It only exists in English. I mean, not all, whatever. It doesn't exist in French. It doesn't exist in Spanish. It's just like a helper verb. It's a non-verb. He goes, well, what is the meaning of the word do? And this from the guy who's like, postmodernists only focus on language and the meaning of words so that they can argue and make claims about whatever they want to deny the truth. How do you know what the true significance is of the text? Now, the answer to that is, this is the answer. We don't know. Now, the problem with the postmodernists wasn't that they figured out that this was a mystery. So when I do something like I interrogate a question, well, the postmodern problem does emerge. Now, I've been trying to work out solutions to that, and, and Jonathan and I and John Verveke have been discussing this a lot. The postmodernists were correct, I think, in their diagnosis of the problem. They leapt right to the idea that the way we solve the problem of perception is by exercising power. If they just took a Marxist story and said, well, there's the solution. When you say like, they here, who are you talking about in particular? Mostly the French intellectual like, types, like Derrida, Derrida and Foucault. And, but yeah, I, would, yeah. I, would, I, would, I would disagree with this, by the way. I don't think Derrida or Foucault took a Marxist position at all. 
Well, Jonathan, you want to have at that for a bit? But I don't, that's not my fight. It's a worthless victory for me. Are you sure you yeah, want to I, talk about that? No, no, no. I, I don't think, like, I don't, I don't care. Okay, well, well we, yeah. we can either delve into that or not. And he's the just, like, taking, taking issue with the most basic functional English sentence. Like, if you're going to have a conversation about metaphysics, then sure, you can go into the meaning of language and the function of language in that conversation, which is, by the way, something that I would certainly do. Do, do. The problem there is to sit there like we don't already have a given context in which a conversation can occur. We don't agree on anything. But no, we agree on what language is for. You understand me. Sounds like he just applies a different standard to uh, other people's thinking than he does to his own. This is, this is, so, gosh, he's such a moron. At one point he says that he has come to the same insight as Derrida, but that Derrida answered the problem of what words mean with Marxism. And first of all, Derrida barely uses Marx at all, except for that he wrote a book on him in the 90s, but the language and text shit is like 25 years old at that point. But second, and way more importantly, is Derrida never claims to solve the problem of meaning in language. And the point of his work is why is there even a problem with meaning in language? And I mean, he doesn't even conclude this, but the point is a demonstration that language isn't a container for truths or signifieds of the real world or whatever, presence. But do you, do you think that when Derrida's wife asked him to do the dishes, he's just like, what even are dishes? <laughs> no. <laughs> we don't have to start every conversation by defining the words in a sentence. And intelligent people's questions about language don't have to do with it, what individual words mean. It's how they mean. That's the only thing that really matters. And that's only ever in the context of use. But I, I agree with you, Victor. I think he I think he just says this because he does believe in God and doesn't want to say so. So he says some shit to sound well, mystical. Well, he, yeah. Or like, I mean, he's just like feels like a grad student jerking off to like uh, skepticism. Well, there is a Derridean point to be made there, a Derridean performance, because once you define those terms, what are you going to use to define those terms? You have to use more language. The guy who launched his career on oppositions to pronouns. What do you, you mean you, you? Now he can't figure out what do means. Are we are we talking about Derrida today? I thought maybe we'd be talking about Rorty, but I guess both. Rorty on Habermas and Derrida. Well, I just uh, thought since since I ended the last since I ended the last episode by saying how little I wanted to talk about Habermas, <laughs> I thought it was perfect to <laughs> talk about uh, once your strength returns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Victor, I think I had you pegged a little bit wrong or painted in my head as a portrait a little bit incorrect because I thought you'd be on the side of the discursive, the intersubjective, and Habermas is very strongly anti-subjectivist in Rorty's painting. So I kind of figured that you'd be on the other side of this, but I've come to realize my picture's wrong about you and that you're, this is more of a fun puzzle rather than making the stakes mm -hmm. as great as Habermas <clears throat> seems to think that they are. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think I'm somewhat sympathetic to like a very indirect pathway that like certain kinds of theorizing about politics can do, but uh, it's very indirect. Like I don't, I don't have grand ambitions that it's going to like make an actual difference. Aww. Um, just before we get started, the article is 
Rorty defending Derrida and Heidegger from Habermas. And if you want to have a look at it, it is attached to the post on our patron page, which you can see because it's public, even if you're not a patron. And the reason for that is I can't attach things to uh, podcast feed posts. So it is there if you want to have a look at it. And uh, I guess initial impressions, this was a killer article. It's very clear, pretty fun. The lines of debate are set up clearly and the debate goes thoroughly. Rorty brings us through a defense, I guess, of, of Derrida and Heidegger from a, a Habermasian offensive and it's a little bit refreshing to read Heidegger and Derrida defended because usually they are being brutalized unfairly for this or that reason, but also because reading Rorty is just a hell of a lot easier than it is to read either of those guys, <laughs> even if uh, even if he's a little less exciting than they are. Well, I will disagree with you because I felt very excited reading this article. I, I found that... and. You know, maybe that's just a difference in our style or like our interests too, because like you seem to get excited by shit that is like impossible to read. You're like, ooh, this is making my <laughs> mind go in a million places because I don't understand it because you're a fucking freak. But like, the, I'm the like, poetic. oh, wow, I can understand everything he's saying. And, that, and and what he's saying is very exciting because I feel like he put into very clear terms just certain things that I've thought about. I've thought about kind of like this divide. Or, I mean, I don't know if it's like a established divide, but just certain like styles of philosophizing, which you're right. It does kind of continue from last couple episodes in the sense of it, it does kind of tackle the question of like what approach to philosophy can we use or should we use to talk about, I guess, moral or political questions. So there's a continuity there. But I found just the way he set up this division, which we'll get into talking about kind of like the what do you what do you refer like people who are more sympathetic to like a Heidegger, Foucault, Derrida versus people who are sympathetic to like a Habermas Rawls. I think he he defines that, puts into words like pretty well and convincingly, like kind of some difference in tendency and like interest. And then his own account, I'm, I find myself sympathetic to about like what like what kind of reasoning or philosophy we can do about political problems. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we can get to all that. But I, I, I liked yeah. it a lot. It was exciting. I, and I did think of you, by the way. Pills. I thought I thought of myself. Yes. And, and I thought of you also. Uh, there has to be a skill about this but there's a skill to saying because he's like Derrida stands obviously he doesn't use that term but Derrida stands are going to suggest this and I'm like actually yeah I do suggest that <laughs> yeah, but exactly. also I didn't feel attacked by it I was like yeah, yeah that's that's pretty much it so the paper is called by the way Habermas Derrida and the Functions of Philosophy by Richard Rorty published in 1995 uh, which will be attached in it but uh, this was soon and after it, I think he wrote his book uh, Contingency Irony and solidarity. Yeah, I and think he, he said he, this yeah. was some material that didn't make it into that book. Publish some oh, of this cool. stuff separately. Yeah, no, I, I think I agree. I, I, I find his style, like, I, well, I found the subject matter just like interesting, you know, a rapprochement <laughs> between Habermas and Derrida. Cool. Like, he's going to diffuse Habermas's critiques of Derrida, then show why Derrida is actually like someone we should think about. That's cool. And Rorty's style is. I find it interesting, clear, buoyant. Like it almost reminded me of uh, reading Latour for the first time, Mike, and just finding just the style very engaging and clear. 
And and I think I also appreciate like his very cavalier approach to mm. philosophy and theory. Like Rorty is is really, you know, like he talks to analytics like Davidson, but he's just so like cavalier towards the analytic tradition. He's constantly questioning himself. He's he's I mean, he, started- he makes these very firm statements, but then he's like also openly like I don't know what to think about this. <laughs> yeah, and he I mean he did start off as like a straight up analytic philosopher. Like he did his PhD, I think on I don't remember what it was on, but definitely like with a pretty well known analytic philosopher and wrote on analytic philosophy and then kind of shifted his style and approach because he just I mean I, and I always respect like n- well-known philosophers when they're clearly like good at both like they, they they've engaged in both robustly and I'm like okay good this will be interesting yeah like I thought his first major book uh, the the his his mirror of nature book was was influenced by Heidegger and he and he's clearly got a grasp of like the Nietzsche Heidegger Foucault Derrida tradition like he's willing to speak to that unlike many of the people he kind of associates with he's very willing to speak to that tradition and find value in it which is also kind of refreshing i want to take a little bit of a step back cuz i we've i don't think we've ever mentioned rorty before rorty's mostly right all the time but he never says anything like ideologically strong enough to be like oh that's a rorty idea he's kind of a a, a balanced fair critic so this article is Habermas attacking Derrida and by extension Habermas attacking Derrida, Heidegger, and Nietzsche. He kind of lumps them together and Rorty comes in and says I'm going to defend Derrida, Heidegger, Nietzsche from Habermas's critiques but also some parts of Habermas's critiques are good. So he's kind of a diffuser. Yeah, like you guys were saying we have this big manufactured split between continental and anglo-american philosophy right and you'll never catch me dead with an analytic philosophy book for the rest of my life because i already did it but it's offensive to me except for davidson who you already mentioned but anyway Donnie. i don't know if you guys will agree with me on this or not but i think we're, we're entering into one of the areas in which the distinction between analytic and continental doesn't seem so important or seems the least important and that is at least what Rorty calls pragmatism because Rorty is pretty hard to place for men- for reasons that you mentioned he talks about Whitehead he talks about Wittgenstein he talks a lot about Heidegger but he in- he writes I guess you could say in a very straightforward you can see the analytic influence in what he writes so he'll, be- he'll he'll frame the debate first Heidegger says this and Habermas says this, then Derrida says this. So it's very straightforward in the way that we might hope. He doesn't seem to see the need for a creative, flowery, deconstructionist language. But, you know, still, I think most of what he says is fair and clear and, dare I say, analytic in style. I mean, he's not using symbolic logic, no. which is the worst kind. But <laughs> but he's but but he's but he's very clear. So like I wanted to read just like a couple sentences because like I think he sets it up well. He's like, um, yeah, he's like I argued in my book uh, Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity that Derrida's books are just what you need if you've been impressed and burdened by Heidegger. If you feel the power of Heideggerian language but want to avoid describing yourself in terms of it, um, and then he goes on to say, on the other hand, 
Habermas's philosophy discourse is just what you need if you find Heidegger and Derrida equally pointless. Um, <laughs> I highlighted that too. Which I thought was great. Discur- that's, his, that's Habermas's book, uh, Philosophical Discourses on Modernity right, or something like right. that, which I strangely enough have on my shelf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he says, he, say, he goes on to say, Habermas helps you feel justified in circumventing the Nietzsche, Heidegger, Derrida genre of ironous theorizing, which we'll get into what that means. Um, and going around it rather than through it. Um, yeah, I like that. I, I, I thought I thought he just places it well. Like I just feel like the way he describes kind of like the these figures and how they interact. I was just, I thought it was very well stated and and convincing. Yeah, one one more quotation. I see Jacques Derrida as the most intriguing and ingenious of contemporary philosophers, and Jurgen Habermas as the most socially useful. The one who does <laughs> yeah. most for social democratic politics. I don't know yeah, about you, I, I don't know about this Habermas praising. He seems like a a really annoying dad to me. But. <laughs> yeah. Well, the way he was laid out here is it does sound. Uh, I don't know. It, it sounds like a way forward if if you're sort of writing in the what like the mid mid late twentieth century. You know, Habermas is like a major option. Third wave, critical theory, Frankfurt School guy, kind of moving towards back towards this like project of rehabilitating enlightenment rationality. That's that's what Habermas is all about. So we've talked about pragmatism before, and I wondered if you could kick this off for us, Eric, because pragmatism is a lot of what you study, but you study early. 20th century pragmatism and uh rorty's known as a pragmatist but he kind of redefines it so i was wondering if you could give us that what changed what does he do how do we situate rorty as an author uh well yeah i would i would preface by saying you know i've got a lot of my pragmatism sort of secondhand through looking at semiotics and becoming interested in purse who's credited as james in in the 1890s credits purse with coining the term but james popularized it and james was also um kind of like a benefactor of purses otherwise purse would have would have died in poverty much earlier than he did and james of course is the surname of william james william james James, the brother of henry james the writer of a turn of the screw uh, William James is his younger brother, I believe, uh, and well-known pragmatist. Yeah, pragmatism is known as like you know <laughs> America's one unique contribution to philosophy. <laughs> it's pragmatism comes from, so it's good old homegrown American philosophy. Uh, and there's lots of it, it, its influence has made its way across to the continental tradition as well. You know, a lot of a lot of continental philosophers can be described as pragmatists, including Deleuze, Deleuze and the, Deleuze cites William James and and Charles Peirce. Very interested in the cinema books and elsewhere. He cites them, uh, and it's you know the way, I I can say that the way Rorty defines it really is is just a it's it's a denial of um, correspondence theory of truth, right? It's a it's a different option if you if you're if you're not happy with representationalism and the realism idealism debate and you're not concerned really with what truth is but more about what truth 
what use the concept of truth has in our discourses and our language games and that sort of thing, um, then you, 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 you can become a pragmatist. But in a, in a sort of wider sense, yeah, it is, it is um, kind of a, an epistemological position, you know, anti-foundationalism, anti-representationalism. Um, it's it's non-transcendental. It doesn't doesn't go for the transcendental ob- option. It's not a philosophy of the subject. It's more oriented to, you know, th- like Victor says these sorts of things all the time. Like, what difference does it make? Yeah. Like, that's exactly what, what the pragmatist is is interested in. Is exactly what difference something would make in practice. It's not practicalism. It's not saying theory isn't important or politics isn't important. To theorize about is just going to say, you know, if it, if it doesn't make a difference, it, then it's something pragmatism won't be interested in. If it's just a abstruse metaphysical debate that has no bearing on improving our lives or helping us discover the answer to some burning question or helping us experiment and observe and, and obtain some settlement of belief or some consensus on some topic or issue, right? Then pragmatism is not interested in it. So you can even say, <laughs> dare I say, it's an ideas don't matter philosophy. <laughs> oh, so it, ideas only matter in so far as they're useful, as they make a difference, right? And so it's it's it has a lot of resonance for me with with systems theory and 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 the posthumanist tradition as well. I'm going to put forward that I don't think it's a very useful distinction. It it kind of describes a disposition towards what philosophy should be for rather than like grouping together people. Like I think all of us are pretty much pragmatists and for sure we're pragmatists by some definition, but I've never said, "Hey, I'm a pragmatist" because I kind of don't know what it means. It can kind of mean whatever you want, but Rory, well, it's the functions of philosophy, the name of this this article, right? It's about the, this is going to be about what you, what uses philosophy, yeah, the function. <clears throat> and I think it's, it would be useful to define one of his terms that he conti- continues to return to throughout the article, which is ironism, which comes from his book um, that I mentioned before about uh, ir- ironies. Um, what was it called? It's Contingency, irony, and solidarity. And so I like went to the actual book to find uh, a definition. And actually, this definition is on, on the Wikipedia article about the book, but it's directly quoted from the book. So basically, he says that an ironist is someone um, describes the status of a person holding the axiom set out in the first three chapters. So like a person is an ironist when they fulfill these three things. Um, they have a radical and inc- continuing doubt about the final vocabulary um, that they currently use because they have been impressed by other vocabularies, vocabularies taken as final by people or books they have encountered. Um, two, they realize that arguments phrased um, in the present vocabulary can neither underwrite nor dissolve these doubts. And then three, insofar as they philosophize about their situation, um, they do not think that their vocabulary is closer to reality than others, that it is in touch with a power um, not themselves. So basically, kind of rude for you to talk to me, talk about me like this when I'm right here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, as so opposed like, to the uh, metaphysician who is quote someone who believes that there is only one right vocabulary of moral deliberation and one who is in touch with reality and in particular our essential humanity. That's yeah. the the opposite of the ironist is the metaphysician as 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 Rorty plays them out. Yeah, exactly. So I think what what's what's interesting about that is um well, I think it like convincingly describes the tendency of people who are more attracted to, I think, post-structural philosophy. And I think what's interesting, which maybe we don't have to get into right away, is like the way that, at least for me, it, it, why I got so excited about it was because he he has this line, which maybe I can find later, where, where he says basically like when ironists try to do political theory, like, like there's a really interesting line there where he's like, like, so he basically has this claim. Maybe we, we should start from this, this idea. He has this claim that um, really like ironist philosophy is a private thing. It should only be done as like a private thing. It has no real place in like public philosophy in the sense of like having an impact on society. Um, and that like this other kind of more Habermasian philosophy, that's public philosophy. That's like trying to talk about like how to reorganize society, how to reorganize institutions. And that ironist philosophy is like kind of meditating on the contingency of everything. That's just something that like you can do yourself. Um, but it seemed to me that he's kind of arguing that it's a bit of a mistake to think that you can somehow make that a public thing, which I thought was or interesting. I, I want to correct you on one thing because you said should, which is against the ironist position. You said it should <sighs> be a private thing. Oh, right. No, he just said it is a private thing. Yes. So an ironist describes according to Habermas, or according to Rorty interpreting Habermas, it describes Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Derrida. So those are the three ironists in this, uh, re recognized in this article. And he mentions Foucault later too, I think. And Foucault, yeah, he mentions Foucault. And he says- Early Fou Foucault. Foucault drifts most towards the social of those three. But I, yeah. so ironic, Four, yeah. ironic theorizing, I gotta say, it just describes me. And that yeah. is someone who sees, I'll, I'll defend myself, I don't think that it's as private as he thinks it is, but it describes theory or theorizing as a sort of a game. And it's always a game because you are always undermining yourself because you recognize mm -hmm. that your ideas are contingent. So your your argument is dependent on language, you're, you're dependent on history, you're dependent on like the experiences that you've internalized. So like this is something that I honestly believe, which is why I am really hostile to shoulds. I'm really hostile mm -hmm. to universals. I'm really hostile to people telling other people what to do because I don't think fundamentally that language and truth have necessarily anything <clears throat> to do with each other. I do think they are accidentally related but they're so interrelated that you can't differentiate them. Whereas I see, from my perspective, the logic bros or analytic philosophy even, as, as saying that these things are so different that you can either express truth in language or fail to express truth in language because they are so separate and language is then subordinate to truth. And then you can measure the truth value of statements and arguments and be correct or incorrect. And I see this probably because I've read so much of the people that he's describing as ironists. I see more of it as play and more of it as a game. And you can say anything. It, it, it's not about what, what 
ultimately measures up to an invisible universal value that you have. And some of the some of the debates or disagreements that we have gotten into the podcast over the years, some of them are equi equitable to that difference in view. Yes, I agree with that. You know, I th yeah, go ahead. I, know, I was going to say a really interesting sort of hook onto last week's episode as well is that well, here, Habermas kind of dismisses ironism. This is one of the points Richard Rorty is going to be critical of. He, he calls that tradition the philosophy of subjectivity, and he thinks it has no place, no use, no, no political use value because it's not a public philosophy. It's focused on the private, and Rorty is going to try to subvert that. But it really does seem like what Habermas calls the philosophy of the subject or philosophy of subjectivity and what Rorty's going to sort of elevate a little bit into liberal ironism is basically what Taylor was talking about in our last episode we did between individualism as the conservative alarmists talk about it, relativistic, soft relativism, solipsistic in a, in a way, versus what Taylor wanted to articulate with a, a – an individualism that has an ideal, that has the idealization of self-realization, of authenticity, and that you're not confined to your individual value system, but these things can be reasoned about in a, in a public way, but you have your own value system as well as, as an individual and you're self-defined, but you're not solipsistic according to the conservative alarmists who are very worried about the modern malaise of, of individualism and relativism. So the, actually, this article really reminded me of – Rorty could almost be like a kind of uh, Taylor, Charles Taylor in, 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 in slightly different terms with very different points of reference, but a lot of similarities I noticed. Really, I saw him as against what we accused Taylor of being. Because he, yeah, I the think whole so time, too. the whole time he's defending what Habermas. Sorry for all the name dropping listeners too, but he Rorty is defending Derrida and Heidegger against what Habermas calls private philosophy, and I, to a, to an extent, I think he's right. But Habermas reads Derrida and Heidegger as bad public philosophers. Where Rorty says they're not even public philosophers; they are private philosophers, but it still matters. Yeah, and that's what they're trying to do. So, like, I think in a way, um, he is defending those figures, Rorty, but I think he's also pointing out where Habermas kind of has a point, or he's agreeing, and he's like, "Yeah, that's true. Like, they are doing that. Like, they don't care about those things. Like, it is hard to mount." But he's like, "But that's the point. Like, that's what they're trying to do." He's like, "You're misunderstanding what those philosophers are doing." Um, and I think he's just like, yeah, there's lots of space for that kind of ironist philosophy. But he also, to me, seems to also want to defend what Habermas is doing in a way that probably you wouldn't be as comfortable with pills. Like, because it seems like Rorty's also saying, well, maybe this kind of kind of public philosophizing, public theorizing can be useful to society, right? Because he, he does seem to want to leave space um, for things that can make life better for people. And I personally found sometimes a little bit vague, but also appealing the way that he just wanted to talk about cruelty and humiliation as things that we are trying to, that like seem, he doesn't even want to say like bad or should, but he's just like, those seem like motivating things 
that we would want to have less of. Um, so he kind of, he kind of has like a way around making like strong normative claims by just being like, well, I'll, I'll see if I can find a quote, but, um, but he, he, he does sort of, so in a way, I think what Rorty to me is doing is like, yeah, I like the ironist philosophizing. I think it's good for what it's doing, but I think he's agreeing with Habermas and some others that, you know, it's kind of dumb. Uh, it's kind of like it can lead to a kind of quietism where you don't do anything. If like that's your whole world, like, and you need to have some public awareness of like cruelties and humiliations and horrible things that are happening in the world, and should not be scared to talk about how those things can be improved. And in that case, you can use a kind of philosopher like Habermas to talk about that. Can I? I can respond to that. I think because I'm mm-hmm. not hostile to universals until the universal becomes a weapon by which a philosopher tells me how I should live. So I'm, I'm an, I'm an Oedipal, I'm a resistant Oedipal figure who just wants to overthrow the father all the time. And I honestly, I agree to an extent with what Rorty's saying here, you know, because private philosophy matters a lot to me. I think anyone who's heard me talk for any amount of time knows that. And I think that the word private, however, is emphasizing the wrong aspect of this, if this makes sense. Because I have called it before a sense. And my sense is mine, in the, so it is private in a sense, of a sense. But also I find it to be general. And I think our listeners have probably heard me speak a lot about sense, like our culture has a sense, our technology creates a sense, and like ultimately it's the sense of alienation that we have as intellectually curious people in a world that is arranged like it is. But I also think that the sense is real. So Habermas and Rorty agree on this and they want to call it private philosophy and to an extent it is private, but I think it is privately shared. I don't think that I would have an audience if that sense wasn't privately shared. Because according to their definition, everything that I am concerned with is private philosophy. Not what the world should do, not how the world should look, but my sense of what the world is. So irony, at least to me, is an expression of that shared sense. And ideas don't matter is philosophical ironism. But I think there's more buy-in than anything that's just individualistic or solipsistic. I think that if you express that sense of alienation properly, then other people will realize that you're right. And if they don't, then I don't care. I'm not concerned with conversion. Yeah. See, see, this is where I don't see a whole lot of difference between what Taylor was saying about, about Rousseau and how he reconfigures um, that sort of what was it called sensational sensationalism before him into a kind of aesthetic inward looking activity that becomes a, a model for good moral behavior and what Rorty is describing here as as private philosophy kind of beginning with Nietzsche he's a good pro- he's a good private philosopher but he gets rid of that, idealist focus on solidarity and he's interested in escaping the sort of burden of tradition 
in order to expand the potential of of what the individual can be i i really i i see a huge parallel between the way that rorty kind of traces ironism back to post hegelian philosophy and the way that taylor traces kind of the origin of of individualism to like rousseau and i also noticed a few times that rorty invoke this kind of public talk and like talking to each other right which also reminded me of stuff that taylor and i remember reading and being like oh pills is going to hate this stuff about like more another philosopher saying like we need to talk to each other but i think what he means is that like it's through that talk that you can only come to realize humiliations cruelties in the world um and that's why he also taught like talks about literature um as one of the forms in which the, the value that literature brings is to make is to bring new sensitivities to people to realize like the experience that other people go through. I think he mentions, you know, could these, you know, civil rights movements and, and these things like, you know, the overcoming of slavery been possible without any lists of few books, right, that talk about the first person account of being a slave. And so so it seems like he wants to make some space for like the importance of discourse uh, in in the world, right? And like he includes, I think, literature, but also something that he kind of vaguely de defines as just like public talk, talking to each other. So I felt called out here. When, just now? No, no, no. In, in reading what you described, we read the okay. same thing, obviously. But I felt yeah. like, okay, why why am I an ironist as opposed to a public philosopher? And... What they're calling public philosophy, I realized through self-reflection, I don't trust it. And I don't trust it because capitalism. Right, right. Wait, what? You're just going to give me that one? <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing we just lost 20% of our listener base for that shit take. But I mean capitalism, ironically, as to mean more than, you know, capitalism. It means where are we going to have this spirited public debate that you're talking about are we going to have it in in uh newspaper articles controlled by you know five companies are we going to have this spirited public debate on a platform that's that's worth x billion dollars are we going to have this debate in neoliberal university departments whose hiring practices whose publication practices don't seem to have anything necessarily to do with truth and establishing the truth between groups of people. They seem to have completely exterior interests. <laughs> and I guess interest, like conversely to both Habermas and Taylor, I don't even trust myself when it comes to being outside of those interests. And you know, that's the ironist position to a T. And it's something I also happen to believe. So I don't trust the public sphere in the way that Taylor and Habermas seem to, because I don't, I, I see it as corrupted and I don't even, <clears throat> I don't even trust my own thinking going out there. You know, I don't think it's insane to think that your discourse will be driven by the same motives and desires that are required to succeed in a particular system at a particular time, which is once in a while, maybe something like the truth with a capital T, but more often not. 
I think that's my answer. Habermas wants to talk about so a uh, universally valid public space. You leave your beliefs at the door. You just have discourse. And I think I don't have faith in that because I have so much faith that I am not the protagonist of this story. And more importantly, truth is not the protagonist of this story, but perhaps some other system is. But do you think that Rorty has faith in that? Because he still wants to make room for this kind of public talk, like Rorty himself. But I don't think he wants to define it in the same terms that Habermas does. I think for him, it's like very much particular problems, social problems, right? He That's why I think he talks about like things that other people might like analytic philosophers might call like moral wrongs or like, you know, injustices. He just says like cruelty, humiliation, right? Like things that are concrete, right? That, that he's like, and we can talk to each other about those things and be and then from that talk can be like, well, let's have this concrete action that can end those things in this case. Right. And like incrementally change those. Th and that's why he talks about like slavery and, and civil rights as like instances of that process happening, right? But it's not because you have some universal, you know, point. It's because you're actually immersing yourself in the concrete cruelties and and humiliations and right all those things. Yeah, like concrete descriptions of suffering or or, or asymmetries that you bring home and people see them and then they sort of realize rather rather than the sort of universal validity method where you come up with with universal principles of action or or you commit to some sort of overarching cause some greater something or you attempt to transform human nature so such that you know there's a, a kind of freedom from oppression from anything external freedom from social oppression totally right he says that that's kind of a, a very misguided view that would be almost like taking taking the private without the public at all mm. which he he sees as a kind of danger but i think the best way he contrasts the private and the public with with habermas as he says, where where Habermas sees a contrast between a socially useless, exhausted philosophy of subjectivity, on the one hand, and a socially unifying philosophy of rationality as intersubjectivity, Rorty, he says, sees a contrast between the private need for autonomy yeah. and the public need for, and this is how he reconfigures the public here, he says the public need for a synoptic view of the goals of democratic society, a society held together by an agreement, in Rawls's terms, <laughs> to give the right priority over the good or to make justice the first virtue. That's that's how he frames his like distinction. So, so Habermas completely, you know, discounts the ironist, the private. Yeah, uh, autonomous. Anything, any autonomy from the public sphere is is for Habermas socially useless philosophy. Yeah, and Rorty also calls it like the public part. He just calls it public problem solving at one point too, which I think is a useful way of thinking. And actually, he says on page four fifty, you know, there's no reason to think we have to choose between Dewey. He's talking about Dewey in this case and Derrida between public problem solving and private struggles for autonomy. The two activities can coexist peacefully. There's no reason why philosophy should have to choose between them, nor any need to assign one some sort of epistemic priority over the other. 
The choice between the two activities in any given concrete case is no more susceptible to the application of general criteria than is any other painful conflict between duties to others and duties to self. Yeah, I got to say, I'm, I'm still comfortable where I'm at. <laughs> well, isn't he saying that that's fine? Well, it'd be, it, it better be fine. He's going to sit there and say, like, your type of philosophizing is useless and my type of philosophizing is useful. Show me. Where's your results, Mr. Habermas? What is what is your public pursuit of justice un, uncorrupted by personal desire? Where is it? Where's the, your results? <laughs> this is what is embarrassing about making reason a world protagonist. Because it's so obviously wrong. And Habermas, obviously, I called him a dad earlier. I think that's indicative of my anti-Oedipal uh, tendencies there. <laughs> just He says reason is going to be the mediator here. And Rorty's much Who more... Who does? does yeah, Habermas Rorty doesn't does. say that. I was Habermas does. Say, yeah, yeah. Rorty's yeah. much more pragmatic in saying, well, we can't do anything on our own. So yeah, do your ironist philosophizing, but make sure you're attentive and looking for solutions also. And that's where I was like, you know what, Rorty, you, you can be my dad. You're okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, concrete problem. Every solving. time that happens, I go, well, what, what am I supposed to do about it? And that's the question that I never push myself. Sorry to get all like autobiographical here, but that's the question I never push myself far enough is like, does this problem have a concrete solution? And I always go, nope, capitalism's going to own us if we even try to step outside of our door. But I also disagree with this, depending on how hard you want to make it, this distinction between private philosophy and public philosophy. Because like I said, the sense of private philosophy can be publicized enough to make it shared. Not universal, but shared at least. Well, I think that's, a, that's actually a kind of a... I, I don't know. I wouldn't say you can just get rid of that aspect of Rorty, though. That distinction between private and public is kind of a problem in his work, throughout his work, right? That the like his notion of of pragmatic pluralism, the kind of Jamesian type of or even Kantian pluralism, whatever you want to call it, is is based on you know the private being separate from the public. The public being a kind of homogenous space where reason prevails, <laughs> not not reason grounded in universal validity, but the reason of concrete problem solving and the what's next kind of point of view being actually confronted with problems and kind of like casuistry on a case by case basis. And then the private sphere being the locale of, of, of all of our different internal lives. And our, our, that's where the philosophy is subjectivity, the private. I mean, I think that's a problem you're, you're putting your finger on. It's not just something that can be like, well, I don't like that distinction, but I like Rorty. It's like, no, that distinction kind of is Rorty in a way. And it's, it's problematic, I think. A homogenous social space in which all of our private problems can be brought to bear, just not in a Habermasian kind of intersubjective reason way, but in a synoptic view of the goals of democracy kind of way it's it's problematic can i if i can give just a a banal example uh a songwriter who writes a song about an experience that is a private experience like whether or not it's true it doesn't matter just it's based on an experience and they put their 
feelings to music. And this, this music resonates with thousands of people, millions of people. And I wonder, w- would that be something private? Would that be something public? Because I personally, as you know, see philosophy far more close to something like artistic expression than something like rational expression. So how would that fit? And if, if, if we're dividing philosophy into pu- private and public, that's ultimately a question about what you think philosophy does and is for, right? Well, I, I interpreted him to mean by private, like kind of an internal, like it, it, like that it that its location is mostly, I mean, I know the internal, external distinction, whatever, problematic, but like, so I guess like one way to think about it is just like as sort of like self-help in a way it's like it's like you know you can be more at peace with yourself if you take up this ironist philosophy like you adopt an attitude that is particular to you yes you can share it with other people you can talk about it you can be like okay like i find value in this too just like you can do with art but i don't think like it's so i don't i think that's distinguished from thinking about some public institutional problem or like some broad structure that is like causing, you know, like causing injury to people that is like publicly experienced and seen. That's different than just, oh, like I find a lot of use in this, like, I don't know, I'm going to use yoga as an example, which like you can share it, but it's still kind of like private in the sense that it is like you actualizing your own sense of self and sense of awareness in the world. Uh, that is to me is different than this kind of public problem solving that he's talking about, which is like alleviating these collective problems of like cruelty. And so it's, I don't think he meant by private that it can't be shared. I just think he meant like where its location mostly is. I mean, Habermas, Habermas did mean that. Oh, Habermas maybe didn't mean that, but I'm talking about. I'm not clear on Rorty's. uh, I mean, thank you for that makes it more clear but i mean that's how i interpret rorty anyway i think this is like what how does the private sort of function is where we have to be a little bit careful um but again this is why i sort of saw that resonance with taylor is because because the private is somewhat analogous to you know you were just talking about listening to a song you know aesthetic artistic creation poetic language right like world disclosing is is the business of you know well it's like a heideggerian term world disclosing or getting away from logocentrism what the ironist wants to do is is tear themselves away from that that tradition that is trying to force conformity upon them and create a new language right these new vocabularies and that's poetic like you know rorty takes this idea of metaphor from Davidson and, and metaphors at first are this sort of surprising creative thing that that are a, a sign of original thought and you can't really argue about them but once once they become a little bit solidified once they become a, a little bit uh, you know static they become metaphors become literalized over time and then that's the point when you can bring them into the public sphere and and have reasoned discussions about them but at first meta the productions of new vocabularies, metaphor, poetic language, the model of poetic language. That's that's where 
the private is. That's Derrida and Nietzsche and Heidegger's role here for Rorty is is being good private philosophers, which means which means this poetic world disclosing language that Habermas completely dismisses because it's not that concrete problem solving language. It's not literalized like Habermas wants it to be. But Rorty valorizes that. And that's just blatantly true. You just look at any etymology. I think it's neat or Derrida quoting Nietzsche says that our, our philosophical concepts, they're just coins with the faces rubbed off. They're all metaphors that we forgot are metaphors. And we're talking about truth this whole time very seriously. Now, truth in English is different from these other languages, uh, French and German. But in English, truth etymologically goes back to the word for a, an oak tree just because it's solid. And this is what I'm always thinking of. is like if you want to take these words so seriously and not take the poetic, not take the expressive, not take the world disclosing seriously, you're just forgetting how language got to be this in the first place. You're taking it for granted. Yay. There's... there's a distinction between the world disclosing and the problem solving functions of language. And Derrida and Heidegger are on the side of the world disclosing. But Habermas, he says, quote, thinks that Derrida denies the existence of an independently structured domain of everyday communication practice, right? So that's, you know, Habermas's post Wittgensteinian side, right? That there needs to be this everyday language of communication that we can all participate in because obviously language can't be private language is not private language is something that's shared between us that's how we understand each other and that's this sort of the point wittgenstein makes in philosophical investigations so there's no such thing as a private language but there's still a kind of poetic creation that goes on here and and that's why I thought it would be being being careful because again he says Derrida doesn't deny the existence of this autonomous domain of everyday communicative practice. Derrida doesn't need to because his point is about you know well writing and the trace and w which which is not a theory of language specifically but it's a more it doesn't it doesn't presuppose a theory of language is what what he's getting at here Derrida does Derrida's does on Derrida's side it's it's a, it's a really difficult point yeah quote Derrida does not belong to those philosophers who like to argue <laughs> unquote yeah yeah he, he yeah he doesn't he doesn't do the public reasoning thing because, but but Habermas hits him for this, because he thinks Derrida is just trying to collapse language into this this amorphous sphere, whereas you know it's it's, it's difficult here when you're not familiar with some of these American receivers of Derrida's philosophy, because it's hard to know what you know, like Paul Demon has sort of done with Derrida. And Rorty's kind of disapproving of how Derrida has been received in America. And De Rorty thinks he has a better version of, of Derrida. And he's going to present him here because Derrida doesn't need to make any claims in that argumentative sense. Because Derrida's theory is not a view of the nature of language, but it, it can't be criticized 
by reference to any theory of meaning, theory of truth, theory of language, because that's not what Derrida is doing. So it's, it's, a, it's a difficult point to tease out without writing an article about it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think he says something really interesting about, uh, which I wonder what pills is taken, actually, Eric, too. <clears throat> and he says he puts for he's like, I put forward a contrast between an intellectual world dominated by the German longing for some higher destiny than that of Nietzsche's last man and one dominated merely by the Anglo-Saxon desire to avoid the infliction of unnecessary pain and humiliation in terms of the distinction between the sublime and the beautiful. And then he says, radicals want sublim sublim sublimity, but liberals just want beauty. Um, so I wonder what you guys made of that. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of interesting. And he goes on to say something which, um, radicals want a world in which all things have been made new and in which the rearrangement of little private things, the pursuit of idiosyncratic autonomy is subsumed under some higher, larger, more thrilling communal goal. They want a public version of the sublim sublimity, which I have been urging in this chapter is by its nature private. The sublimity one attains by breaking out of some particular inheritance of vocabulary, tradition, or style, which one had feared might bound one's entire life. I don't think it's possible to make a public version of that. I, I think like that, that that's going to be the goal of society, like to, to give everyone that sublimity. Well, we should define what he means by this, because he says the, the radicals want sublimity and the liberals want beauty. Uh in case anyone's not on board here, uh, those are Kantian categories where the beautiful is something that you notice is good, you realize it's good, and the sublime is something that is beyond good. It comes from the outside and just demands your submission to it. So the radical, in this sense, wants utopia. They, You could just say yeah. you know, they want the end of capitalism, they want a world without alienation, and that's like their goal. Whereas the liberal just wants beauty, which is another way of saying the liberal's utilitarian. They, if they see someone suffering, they'll, you know, kind kind of suffering. try to stop that suffering. And once that suffering is done, then we're all good. But I think this actually belies something a little more dark, which is I'm sure. if the liberal doesn't see it, then it's not real. And our liberal version of capitalism has worked. We have the beautiful world. We have our entertaining electronics. We have food from anywhere and everywhere that can show up magically on your doorstep. We have cheap fucking clothes, exploitation, wage slavery, actual slavery. What are those things? And obviously, I think Rorty will say we shouldn't be okay with those things. We have to be ethical still, I guess. But what is the use of a conversation about universal ethics on this point? And Where's the moral obligation to see what we can't see? Even if we saw it, we have a, no free choice to stop it. Because in one sense, we already have the liberal world he wants. We can just live in the beautiful. Go into the university philosophy job, get tired, do some teaching, do some marketing, come home, watch some sports. Oh, look, I live in the beautiful world. And I roll my eyes when these guys talk about solving concrete problems because, once again, they're making reason or the idea of freedom into a world protagonist and no matter how you want to slice it talking to each other does not change a supply chain yeah i mean so i think that ultimately um rorty ends up coming down in this case on the side of the liberal but that's why he spends so much time talking about 
identifying those sources of suffering and humiliation and cruelty. That's why the work of talking to each other is important. That's why the work of literature is important because then we can see those things, right? And it's and and I think that he so where he's with Derrida is yeah, like coming up with a grand theory of like good and evil, like that's stupid, that's a waste of time. All you need to do is describe um to bring to the forefront that cruelty and suffering. You don't need to have like a theory about it, but he's still on the side of the liberal, I think, in the sense that like that's really important. Like we need to draw attention to cruelty to suffering to all those things that he wants to talk about yeah Um, he does make some descriptions he says like in this world he's imagining where we don't have radical social theory in this world we would have what he says here is a switch from an ideal of universal validity to linguistic historicism which would encourage irony at the expense of metaphysics so ironism here and it would encourage a sense of contingency of final vocabularies. So again, it comes back like he's a linguistic. He's he's operating in the in the wake of the linguistic turn here. So he's like the contingency of final vocabularies, rather than escaping this contingency and and getting that sense of finality. And he's so he he does and and that that like concrete descriptions of pain and humiliation, rather than. What he says, we we need that rather than running together the diminution of pain and humiliation with the idea of transforming the nature of man. He doesn't like this idea of transforming the nature of man, this, this sort of internal welling up of sublimity that's going to burst its seams and change the world. He doesn't like that. Yeah. So you're you're again you're sitting on the couch watching reality television. That's that's just your chosen path. Okay. Or whatever. you're just sitting around reading Deleuze and Guattari. Like that's not going to change the world either, right? Like it doesn't have to be a reality TV show. I think he's actually saying something more specific at people who just want to read radical theory all the time or something like that. Like he even he has a great point on the last page where he says. Um, instead, one will put most of one's hopes for the relief of unnecessary socially continenced pain and humiliation in two things. First, the sorts of writings I listed above, novels, articles, and reports by those who are able to make specific kinds of pain and humiliation visible. Second, proposals for specific changes in social arrangements, e.g. in laws, company regulations, administrative procedures, educational practices, etc., etc. This means that terms like late capitalism, modern industrial society, and conditions of the production of knowledge will be employed less frequently, and terms like worker representation, laws against unproductive financial manipulation, and journalists' union more. Yeah, dude, he's... He's calling out, we've left our friends, the Twitter Marxists, alone for a couple episodes. But he's yeah. calling out the Twitter Marxists because the Twitter Marxists yep. say, unless you're a radical rhetoric, like rhetorically only, unless you're a radical rhetoric Marxist arguing for the overthrow of capitalism, which he would call here the sublime, is the end of capitalism, yep. then you are a lib. You're a lib reformist, and we don't want you. You are like AOC, and fuck you. Yeah. But he's saying, Rorty's saying, you know, you can have that sense of sublimity, but ultimately the only thing that's going to change the world is this pursuit of beauty or the pursuit of utilitarian goals, 
make a few things better for a few people. That's better than sitting there and saying, we need to overthrow capitalism, and then capitalism doesn't end up getting overthrown, and everyone's life is the same. Yeah, or just be more specific. Like, yes, I agree, like it is that, but that requires a kind of like particularism in the sense that he's like, talk about particular problems in particular circumstances and particular solutions that are appropriate to those circumstances, right? So it's like, there's no universalism about moral wrongness or rightness. It's just like, this specific thing needs to be fixed because of these contingent reasons. And we just need to look and be aware and bring those things into visibility. But like, forget about these big buzzwords or buzz terms, right? About, so I love it. I mean, I think this is, this is like, this is like my view. I feel like what he's saying here is like, I feel very um, close to 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 his view here. Well, if I can push back on it, since you since you buy it, what yeah. does the what does philosophy have to do with any of this? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna be the Twitter Marxist. I guess I am kind of a Twitter Marxist, but I'm gonna be the Twitter Marxist and say, no matter how much you talk, no matter how many conferences you put on, journal articles you write, capitalism ain't going to give a shit. It doesn't matter how much you bring to light. It doesn't matter if you do a documentary on the horrid working conditions in in Chinese factories. It doesn't matter how many Oscars Parasite wins. It doesn't many, matter how many dramas like Made come out on Netflix. It doesn't matter how many leaked exposés of political corruption are released. You've had the chance for your reformed enlightenment and yet we're more alienated stupider poorer than our parents were because social and legal decisions are made where there's accumulated capital not where there's rational conversation so if you're gonna do philosophy you might as well do the fun interesting shit instead of the pretentious we are the ones who change the world because we are the agents of reason in history type of philosophy yeah, I mean, look, I, I've I've said from the beginning that I'm not I don't think that doing philosophy is going to solve these problems. And in fact, he doesn't even really like list philosophy um, as like one of the main ways of bringing to light these, you know, socially experienced sufferings and pains. Right. Like that's why he actually he actually favors like the novel. Um, or like artwork to bring those things to the foreground. Like I am doing philosophy in the way that I'm doing it because I think it's interesting and fun to argue about, but I don't think it's going to solve any social problems, um, as I said before. But I do think, uh, but so I, but I, but what I'm with him on is like focus on specific things. Um, like when, it, like, like if you're actually serious about solving like problems that are going to make people's lives better. Like you kind of need to get serious and like learn about policy and learn about the policy process and learn about how those decisions are actually made uh, concretely on the ground. I think his view of, you know, I mean, he straight up says it after the first division. He says, you know, my view, the nature and function of philosophy is a pseudo topic. He thinks of it. He thinks philosophy is basically a pseudo topic here. He's not he's not interested in a theory of meaning that leads to a theory of truth. He's not interested in universal claims to universal validity. He's not interested in a universalist project as as many sort of like Marxists and 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 even you know Marxists who sort of work against maybe the post-Marxist current 
are into a, a project of universal humanism. And Rorty doesn't like that. Here, he, he's, he's all for a philosophy of the subject, it seems, in the form of this ironism. And he, he, he kind of reproaches Habermas for dismissing philosophy of subjectivity. But he also sees this philosophy of subjectivity merely as the creation of new vocabularies. And, and then those vocabularies starting out as metaphors and hardening into literal become then fodder for articulations of, of public reason in order to solve specific problems. And that's his sort of the, the cycle of, of Rorty's like reasoning here in, in a way. Mm -hmm. But he's, you know, he, he makes a lot of assumptions about, I mean, this public-private distinction I think is problematic. He, he assumes a kind of homogenized public sphere. Why, you didn't say specifically why you thought the private part was uh, problematic. You just don't like the homogenization or the, the assumption? I think the separation is a little bit artificial between he says something about the private it though. and the public. He says something that, about that, and I'm going to try to find it. Um, yeah, please do, because I'm uh, yeah, like I'm I'm still a little confused about how those two spheres would like interact in this picture. How how does the private sphere and the public sphere interact? How does how does the non metaphysician the non metaphysician the ironist, you know, how does this private not language, but this sort of poetic world disclosure become like politically, you know, f like uh, um, operationalized. Well, he says this near the beginning that this public-private distinction is something that Enlightenment philosophy contributed to philosophy because you wouldn't find that in in like the Greeks say their philosophy would only be considered public philosophy. But he said this uh, Enlightenment philosophy and Romanticism and the back and forth there split philosophy into uh, both an, a private aspect and a public aspect. And people like Kant, for example, they are in both, they have a foot in both. And then with Romanticism and Nietzsche, then we have a split off that just becomes like pure private philosophy that says the public, what the hell am I going to do with that? Um, Hegel would be the public side of of Nietzsche if we're going to make that that division. But in, in Kant, right? He would Kant would appeal in his ethics. Kant would appeal again to that sort of like you know the the ethical principle, the the um, the 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 maxim, right? Which is a kind of like a non human thing. It's a universal, like the self legislation of reason. And and Rorty doesn't want that. Rorty doesn't want the private sphere to have a kind of have a privileged access to some kind of ethical principle, some kind of um so he's he's sort of against this this um this uh, deontological approach. Oh yeah, for sure. But I'm just saying he he says the Enlightenment introduced that distinction and he's still finding that distinction useful. You can see it in that Actually, he uses it backwards, but you can see it in the use of the sublime and the beautiful because the sublime is everywhere. Must everyone who ever sees this must agree that this is sublime, whereas beauty can be like based on your personal taste and private. But in any case, he thinks, uh, yeah, Habermas wants to give up one side of it based on his reading of 
Derrida and yeah, I guess we're being going down the middle yeah. again here. So he's taking a kind of he's taking a conciliatory approach. He's taking a nice little centered view. Yeah, I love. I, lo- I mean, I yeah, I appreciate the effort. I mean, I think what I think it's rare to also find someone do that, but uh, I feel that he's being pretty fair to both sides in a way, which I was impressed by. Like I was impressed, but even though I don't know Habermas that well, it's just like, cause he's, he's obviously still kind of defending some of Habermas. Um, but then he's also defending right Derrida. And in fact, he's not even, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't even put it the way that Eric put it, which was that, you know, he's, you know, he, he, he's criticizing, uh, like, like Habermas for being too public necessarily, what I see him more, what, but although that was implied, I think really what I would see him more is doing is really like defending Derrida and Heidegger against the unfair criticisms that Habermas sh- shoots <laughs> at them. Right? And he's kind of like I wrote that in my notes. Like this wasn't a concili- uh, reconciliation. He was just defending one against the other. Yeah, but I think still, ex- but still, like clearly, he's not an anti-Habermasian, right? I think that's one no, of the differences. You're right. Like you're right, you're right. normally, you would see someone who would want to defend Derrida and, and Heidegger against this kind of uh, a critique would be like a hyper, you know, Derridian who's anti-Habermasian. Like that would be more normal. Where he's not that at yeah. all. He's kind of like, well, I see the value in Habermas too. I just think he's wrong about this, right? Yeah, I enjoyed it as far as it goes. And I think he summarizes like his problem with Habermas perfectly when he says Habermas over-dramatizes the contrast between subject-centered reason and communicative reason. Yes. And Habermas looks for signs of subject-centeredness in everything that he claims the status of philosophy everything that claims the status of philosophy without being socially useful. He thinks he, he, that's his critique of, but he, but he affirms all kinds of elements of Habermas. He thinks that philosophy, or at least <laughs> linguistic historicism in, in, in lieu of philosophy should be publicly useful. But then again, I, I just, I, I'm not entirely clear on how we get, how those two spheres interact, the, the public and the, the private, or the how, how communicative reason and linguistic historicism should should what their proper relationship to one another should be. Yeah, I think he deals with this more in the book on ironism, and I don't remember this distinction being that har- as harsh as he kind of lays it out here. And I can't tell if he's laying it out harshly because um, he's quoting Habermas or whether he takes that view. I just have to mention, like the cover of that book, I find it kind of weird. That like I don't know if you guys are seeing the cover of Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. If you like, look it up. Is it, it's is just it so weird that like he decided to put it. Yeah, that no, that he just decided to put himself on the cover. Well, like it's just like him. That's probably the publisher. <laughs> and I find that so weird. I don't there's know. Yeah, I guess so. I just like why would you approve that? I don't know. Like here's like the Wikipedia article. I just like like what philosopher just puts themselves sitting in like a garden. <laughs> on the cover it's just i find it so odd i don't know a distinguished I have, I, gentleman I would, in a white suit it's just odd to me it's like well that's i don't know yeah he's got these funny pictures floating around of him out there like him doing the uh, sort of look back the smiling look back and things like that yeah i mean i i would throw it out there that you know rorty has been accused of of being kind of ethnocentric overly valorizing you know modern liberal democracies seeing that seeing those as the model that the rest of the world should follow and there are you know good critiques from the left of rorty coming out and i would just 
read one example I find found from Chantal Mouffe um, saying that Rorty's, Rorty's identification of the political project of modernity with a vague concept of liberalism, which includes both capitalism and democracy, is a problem. If one fails to draw a distinction between democracy and liberalism, between political and economic liberalism, if as Rorty does, one conflates all these notions under the term liberalism, one is driven under the pretext of defending modernity to a pure and simple apology for the institutions and practices of the rich North Atlantic democracies. And so, you know, he does, and, and he does, he makes the chauvinistic point even in this article. It's not hard to you know, suss out, Rorty says, to be bluntly chauvinistic about it, <laughs> this switch would emphasize the Anglo-Saxon utilitarian reformist brand of social thought and de-emphasize the German ideology critique brand. Mm. So he does have a kind of, he does have a kind of uh, bulldozer liberalism. He is very chauvinistic by his own admission, and he is, you know, He's he's got a he's 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 all down with the liberal ethnos. He's an ethnocentric thinker. He's in the American tradition, so it's not surprising in that sense. Yeah, the the white is, suit in in the garden is make, starting to yeah, make sense. Yeah, you can watch an extremely dry kind of one of those old school philosophy overdose couch sittings of him with Donald Davidson discussing yeah, I like that. <clears throat> truth, I and it. it was it was actually quite enlightening, but. Um, but my point is to be more radical. <laughs> well, last thing, I wanted to still shove one thing here in at the end. He gives this defense of uh, Derrida, and I wanted to bring this up just because for our, our listeners' sake, 98% of what anyone says about Derrida is wrong. And I know that I sound like a stan. I guess I am a stan, okay? Yeah, you're kind of a stan. Derrida says this about truth. Derrida makes this claim about language. Like, they're so rare that he ever says anything. Yeah. So they are ascribing, Rory describes this like halfway through the article, people think that Derrida doing this little performance of deconstruction is him making claims about truth and all that. And that comes from Derrida's interpreters who, like Daman, good interpreter, like says pretty much, but he puts Derrida's performance into the language of a thesis or the language of a conclusion. Like Derrida is saying this when he does this. But almost all the time, that is the reader adding to the performance and saying, this mm. was Derrida's intention. And Derrida, more than yeah. anyone else I've ever read, is very careful to not state his intention. He will put it out. You can read it how you want. You could say this is a performance. You can say this is a declaration of truth. You can say he's making an argument. You can say he's drawing a conclusion. But he very rarely does that on his own. Yeah. Once in a while in interviews he does, but almost never when he's writing. He's very specific about his Well, doesn't he actually doesn't he actually blame some of the misinterpretations that Habermas has on these readers of Derrida? Like he says that in the article, doesn't he? Yeah, they they take Derrida and make him out to have like a metaphysical point or a point about the nature of language or a philosophical project. What's well, all those bullshitters in English departments? They're fucking ruining Derrida. <laughs> <laughs> the the English departments. Well, Jordan Peterson does this. Charles Taylor last week did this. It's like Derrida says this. And every time, 98% of the time, I should say, he didn't say that. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. He didn't say that. Anyway, 
So you're saying that you're saying that you're saying that Rorty was good yes. on this point, right? In interpreting him, Rorty actually has read Derrida. You can tell. Yeah, Rorty's great on that. He's yeah. he's he says these when you take Derrida as the Americans did and try to like work out like metaphysical claims. He says all that that becomes fodder for people like Habermas to just just drag then their arguments out of the private into the public sphere look at them as bad public philosophers and then come up with these reasons why their arguments are incorrect when Rorty as we already said Derrida is not one of the arguing philosophers and an inconsistent philosopher like myself will say I'm not making metaphysical claims and then go and make metaphysical claims but Derrida <laughs> is not an inconsistent philosopher. He's very careful not to do that. Yeah. In such a short piece, you know, he said a lot of good, great things. And I love, you know, someone who's actually willing to bring Derrida in <laughs> and treat him as complimentary to the main point rather than as a as a foil. And honestly, like I've never read someone that I've been closer to being like, this is the sense in which I'm a lib is like Rorty. Like that's the closest I think that I've seen someone come up to or to like another philosopher. And a robust pragmatism that doesn't fall into that simple, you know, practicalism and anti-theory kind of like anti-theory of the 80s. Yeah. Kind of. No, he's he's down for theory. He, you just have to reconfigure it in, in a certain way to, to uh, be ironist theorizing, I guess you yeah. could say. And ultimately, we're all libs anyway, especially the ones, who, especially exactly. the ones who say they aren't the the screechy ones. They're the most lib of all, trying to impose their exactly. moralist language onto everybody else who exists on the great disclosed world, the world of shared yeah. sense. Well, that was a that was a good episode. I'm yeah, happy with I, that. that. Was good. good pick, Vic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm happy it turned out. All right. Yeah, Rorty's a lot of fun, actually. I enjoy reading Rorty. You know, for our purposes, it was good. Uh, listeners, you should you should read it. I said should. Yeah, I know, but you know, it's a good. It's worth it's worth a read. How about how would that? Just adjust yeah, my language yeah. accordingly. Are they contingency solidarity, and irony, or whatever that? Contingency was. irony solidarity. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, guys. For... <laughs> <laughs> All right. We will see you no, next they, week. Yeah. yeah. See ya. Yes, sir.